Amen. You can have a seat. Thank you, Rob. Band, uh, beautiful, beautiful. Um, good morning. Once again, my name is uh, Elliot Cherry. I'm the lead pastor here at uh, Midtown 12 South. If you're visiting with us, we're so glad you're here. Um, we'd love to get to know you. Uh, please don't be, uh, don't be embarrassed or afraid to introduce yourself to anyone you see up front. We'd love to help you get more plugged in here if, if you're uh, just joining us. Um, as a very brief uh, intro, <laughs> Rob's staring at me as he walks by. Everybody give it up for Rob real quick. Thank you. Throw it right back on him. Yeah. Um, Joseph Patton, our uh, full-time worship leader, uh, they had their third baby boy this week, uh, so he is out. Uh, don't cheer for that. That is way too many boys. Uh, I'm kidding. I came from three boys at my own house, but um, Rob is filling in uh, volunteers, so thank you, Rob. Uh, very brief sermon series intro and overview as to what we are diving into this little season. We're doing a six-week series. This is week uh, number four of a series we're calling The Questions That God Asks. There are very specific moments in the Old Testament where God shows up with very specific and particular questions for very particular people. Uh, and so we're studying these questions in their context to say, what kind of questions does God ask, and what kind of questions might he be asking us in a very personal way? So this is week number four. We're going to be in the book of First Kings, and the Old Testament comes right after the book of Second Samuel, uh, and the Old Testament um, comes right before Second Kings. If you're turning there, uh, if you've got your phones or your Bibles, or you want to look on the screen, this is First Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Um, and we will read 18 verses, uh, but it is a narrative in a story, so it reads uh, pretty quickly. Chapter 19, verse 1 of 1 Kings says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under, the, under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, 
the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. So quite the passage, <laughs> a, lot, a lot going on. Um, but in order to try to begin to understand what's happening in chapter 19 that we just read, um, we need to actually back up and get some context, 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 context. Context matters when we're trying to read and understand scripture. So chapter 19 is its own story in a lot of ways, but we won't fully understand chapter 19 until we back up and understand what the heck was going on in chapter 18. What got us here? What has led to this dramatic scene? So here's a brief recap of chapter 18, and we need to understand this if we're going to understand what we just read in chapter 19. Elijah was the prophet of God in Israel at the time, but Israel was not doing so well. They had an evil king, an evil queen, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And King Ahab and Queen Jezebel had led the people of Israel to declare a new national god. It was no longer Yahweh, the god of their ancestors. It was Baal. And Baal and his prophets worked for King Ahab and, and Queen Jezebel. And they were declaring, they were building altars to Baal. And they were setting up temples and shrines and high places to worship Baal and this, this other god. And so the country was spiraling into chaos and, and spiraling into destruction. And King Ahab and Queen Jezebel were responsible for this. And Elijah, the prophet of God, the prophet of Yahweh, comes and says, We've had enough. This is not our God. This is not who we are. This is not, he is not our God. He is, Baal is not our rescuer. Baal is not who rescued us from Egypt many years ago. This is not our God. And so he did what we love the, the hero of the stories to do. Elijah came and said, fine, let's have a duel. Let's have a showdown between the gods, Baal and his prophets and God and his prophet in Israel. So he literally goes to Mount Carmel, invites the entire nation it's like renting out Bridgestone Arena and saying, hey, this is, this is for all to see. Come and get a ticket. Everybody can come and watch. We're going to have a showdown of the gods on, Mar on Mount Carmel, sponsored by Bridgestone. Okay, so they're, <laughs> they're going to they're gonna do this duel of the gods on top of the mountain for everybody to see. And the winner of the duel, the nation will be able to, to then say in unison, Baal is not our God. This is our God. So here's how the showdown happens. They get up to the top of the mountain, and they build two altars. Baal and his prophets build an altar to Baal, and Elijah builds an altar to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And the challenge is, what, what everybody was watching to see was, who can have their God call down fire from heaven to burn on the altar that they've built for their God? And so Baal's prophets literally spend all day. They build their altar, they, they cry out, they weep, they, pre, they pray, they plead, they even cut themselves, they're sacrificing. Baal, send fire from heaven, and nothing happens. And I love Elijah. Elijah is so like 
me, so like us, he gets really sarcastic. I love it. He goes, oh, I'm sorry. Baal must be using the toilet right now. He must be in the bathroom. Is he busy? Like, what's taking him so long? He literally says that. I'm not making that up. You think, like, that's fifth grade potty humor, and it is. But it, was, it is what Elijah actually says to the prophets of Baal. Oh, is your God relieving himself right now? Is that why he's not here? Is that why he's not showing up? So it happens, and nothing, nothing, no fire comes down on Baal's altar. It's in Elijah's turn to go on top of Mount Carmel. And here's what Elijah does. He raises the stakes. He douses his altar with three huge buckets, three different times full of water. He soaks his stones in water. And then he digs a ditch, and he fills the ditch with water all around the altar. It is soaking wet on, on Elijah's altar. And here's all that Elijah says. The Baal prophets have been screaming and pleading all day, cutting themselves. Nothing happens. Elijah says, hey, God, do your thing. And the Lord sends down fire from heaven and he engulfs, he consumes the stone and the wood on the altar. It even says he licks up with his fire all the water from the ditch and dries it all up and consumes it all. He incinerates it with his fire from heaven. So if you're watching, if you're at Bridgestone and this is how the duel went down, it's very clear who won the showdown. It's so clear who won the showdown. It's so clear, in fact, all of Israel is there and they're watching and they say, Yahweh is our God, Baal is not our God, and they kill all the 850 prophets of Baal on the mountain. So Elijah's going, God, the plan worked. Like, we have taken care of the, of the idol worship. We have taken care of the false god who had consumed our people and taken their allegiance away. Your plan worked, and now their prophets are dead, and now I have restored Israel, and we're back in harmony, and it's all going to be good, and the plan has gone exactly the way that it should have. What an amazing God. This is how it is supposed to go. Until word gets back to Jezebel the queen, who didn't come to the showdown, and she hears that all of her 850 prophets have been killed. That's chapter 18. The showdown, the plan seems to have been working. Elijah's pumped. This is restoring Israel. We're renewing Israel in the hearts of the people. It's all going to be good. And then we turn to chapter 19, what we just read. And in verse 2, Queen Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah to tell him this wor- these, these words. So may the gods do to me, and more also, this is Queen Jezebel speaking, if I do not make your life, Elijah, as one of the life, as the life of one of them, the other prophets who you killed, by this time tomorrow. Here's what Queen, Queen Jezebel just said to Elijah. May the gods kill me if by this time tomorrow I haven't killed you. So she puts a bounty on his head and vows to kill Elijah. So pause just for a minute. Okay, you know chapter 18, the duel on the mountain, Fire on the mountainside, right? It, it, it happened. The, 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 the God of Israel wins the duel. And then this Queen Jezebel comes and threatens Elijah's life. Now, if you're Elijah and you just saw what happened on Mount Carmel, you just saw fire from heaven come down and consume the altar and saw all of the prophets of Baal get slaughtered and, and justice is reigning again and there's grace in the land again and God has restored the hearts of his people. And some queen comes and says she's going to kill you. How do you think Elijah would respond to that? What are you talking about, Queen Jezebel? You think I'm afraid of you? You think that what you can threaten my life, you didn't just see what my God did, you think I'm gonna run away from you? That's how the reader is meant to be feeling as we just read chapter 18 and coming into chapter 19 and we go, who cares if Queen Jezebel is threatening his life? Look at what God just did to show himself to his people. But this is how Elijah responds. Chapter 19, verse three. 
Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba. That's in the south of the country. So he's heading out of town. He's heading out of the country. He was afraid. He rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there, which we'll talk about in a minute. But he himself went a day's journey farther into the wilderness, so he keeps running, and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Is this how you expected God's servant, God's prophet to respond in the face of some death threat? Elijah's terrified. He runs away from this woman who puts a bounty on his head. He not only runs away, he runs to Beersheba. He's heading out of the country and he leaves his servant there. That's the way the author is telling us he's quitting his job. He leaves his staff behind and says, I don't work for God anymore, so you don't have a job anymore, servant. I'm out of here. I'm quitting the ministry. I want nothing to do with God or being his prophet. I'm done. I'm done with this life. I'm done with this job. I don't even want to be alive anymore. He gets suicidal. He asks that he might die, saying, take away my life. He's going, God, just kill me. Don't let her kill me. You kill me, because I don't want to live anyway. He is so done. He is so checked out. He is so depressed at the threat of his life that Queen Jezebel makes. Coming out of chapter 18, this opening few verses of chapter 19 is, is literally meant to startle the reader, to go, whoa, he just decimated Baal, the lesser gods of the land, in a showdown on top of Mount Carmel. And now some queen threatens his life and he's suicidal? He's running away. He leaves the country. He leaves the ministry. He leaves his God. I, don't, I want nothing to do with this ministry or this mission. I, I don't want to deal with this anymore. I'm done. Victory seems to have been transformed into defeat almost instantly. And the brave prophet we saw on Mount Carmel just five verses before is now a cowering refugee. No one's faith in the Lord should be higher than Elijah's at this point. And the way that the story reads, we are meant to feel that confusion. We are meant to feel that disparity. Why is he so afraid of Jezebel? And why is he giving up his ministry? And why is he running? And why is he depressed? And why is he suicidal? In fact, this reversal that we read, reading chapter 18 into chapter 19, is so drastic that there are critical commentators, critical scholars of this book that believe that whoever, whatever human put First Kings together for us to read, whoever ordered it in the history books for us to read through the story as it happened, whoever ordered it, they don't believe that it's divinely inspired, they believe that humans just made it, they go, okay, whoever put chapter 19 or after chapter 18 made a huge mistake, that, that wasn't meant to go there. Because it's not possible for someone to go from on top of the mountain with God, Mount Carmel, and seeing the showdown. It's not possible for them in four verses to be down in the pits and wanting to take their life away. Critical scholars believe this mountaintop to valley experience is far too drastic to be realistic or believable. Unless you know yourself. Unless you know what depression is like. Unless you know just how fickle and faint your own heart can be. 
unless you know that no matter what mountaintop you've been on recently, it doesn't matter because you've been on enough of them to know that they don't last. And in an instant, you can be believing and saying and speaking crazy things. You can be despairing and reeling and acting in a whole bunch of insane ways like that. Unless you know the power of shattered dreams, unless you know the heartache of dashed hopes, unless you know the utter pain of despair and depression, you know that the shift from 18 to 19 is not too fast. And if you don't know those things, meet Elijah. That it should be equally startling and equally comforting to you to hear how the New Testament describes Elijah when in the book of James, James tells us in chapter 5, verse 17 of the book of James, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. So can you relate to this man who has a nature just like you? And he literally goes from quite literally a mountaintop, spiritually and physically, to a valley of depression in four verses. Can you relate to him? Can you return from a great family vacation? Not a vacation. It was with kids, so it was a trip, okay? Um, <laughs> it was a visit. Um, can you come back from a great week away, and the very night you get home, you lose your temper on your children? Is that possible? Wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. We were just, it was just, everything was great, and now we're home, and now it's not great. Like that. Now, nine hours in the car didn't help, but I'm not justifying. I'm just saying, Okay. Elijah, greatest prophet in Israel's history. That's how he will go down. He is known as Israel's greatest prophet. Elijah, the man who literally called down fire from heaven. Hear that. He calls down fire from heaven one chapter before. Elijah, the man who in a few chapters will ride a fiery chariot, a chariot, a lot of fire in Elijah's life, a fiery chariot into the heavens, and he will never taste death. This man, this man, this infamous prophet of Israel was a human being with a fickle and faint heart just like ours. So if that's Elijah, and that's where he is, let's take a look and see how the Lord deals with people like Elijah who has a nature just like ours. Let's see how the Lord deals with people just like us. So knowing where Elijah is at in his heart, also take into consideration what he's just experienced. He's been on the run for a day, so he's running for his life. He is physically and spiritually exhausted. And then let's think about the experience that he just witnessed. He just witnessed an all-day showdown between the gods. He, he says, God, do your thing, and he calls down fire from heaven, and then he watches all of the prophets of Baal get slaughtered in front of them. I don't care what your judgment is of, of the storyline of what's gone down until this point. Just imagine Elijah being on the mountaintop and then being on the run for his life less than a day later. This is a traumatic experience. This is, this is a lot to hold. And so without giving any judgment or passing any judgment on how he's transformed from mountaintop to valley, at least acknowledge this is a lot to carry. He's a human. He's depressed. This is heavy. It has taken a toll on his heart and soul. And so two things we're going to look at with Elijah in this state, exhausted and depressed. Two things that the Lord does for Elijah and for people like Elijah. 
The first is, he lets Elijah be human. And the second is, he speaks to Elijah. Both are very important. Neither is necessarily more important than the other, but the order of those does matter. He lets Elijah be human, and he speaks to Elijah. So we're going to look at those two things as we close. If Mount Carmel, the chapter before, is where uh, the Lord showed up to prove who he was to the people of Israel, this next interaction, the rest of what we're going to study, is not the Lord proving himself to the masses, but the Lord proving himself to Elijah and people like him. So the first, this is who your God is. This is who the Lord is He lets Elijah be human. Look with me again at verse five. We throw this up, Courtney. Verse five says, And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. This is profound. Please, please do not miss. It's really easy to pass over those narrative details to get to what we'll get to in a minute. But do not miss how the Lord starts his care for Elijah. This is so important that you know this about the Lord, and this is how he cares for people like Elijah and people like us. It's also really important that you know this is how we are to care for people like Elijah and people like us. Look at what he does. The angel of the Lord shows up to Elijah. And again, you know where Elijah's at. You know how his head and his heart are doing. And the angel of the Lord does not start by saying to him, Fear not, Elijah. Why are you so afraid? Didn't you just see what happened on Mount Carmel? Get up and go back. He also doesn't show up to him and say, hey, Elijah, you have little faith. Where is your faith in the Lord at? He is the God of Israel, and you stand up in his strength, and the joy of the Lord is your strength. You get back up, and you go home. The angel of the Lord doesn't come and do any of that. What does God do first for Elijah? He cooks him a meal. He cooks him a meal, and then he tells him to take a nap. Two of them. The angel of the Lord, the angel, the, the host, uh, the, 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 the commander of the host of God's armies, the angel of the Lord, this mysterious character in the Old Testament. Some people think it's a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus. We don't know. But this, this is quite the character, the angel of the Lord. He shows up in these incredible situations. The angel of the Lord, all that he does when he shows up to Elijah, he cooks for him. He touches him, like gives him physical touch and embrace He dwells with him, and he lets Elijah be where he is. He doesn't start the situation, he doesn't start the care for Elijah by trying to fix all of his problems or address all the issues or going, hey dude, you got some jacked up stuff going on, and I know that you're tired, but we got to talk about some stuff. We need to get to the bottom of what in the world is going on in your heart and why you're so depressed. He doesn't do any of that. What the Lord does first for Elijah is, is he cooks him a meal and tells him to take a nap. Two of them. This is so tender of the Lord. This is so wise of the Lord because the Lord knows what we need. This is what we would call in the modern era holistic care. He doesn't jump straight to the heart. He doesn't do a soul dive immediately. He lets Elijah be human. 
This is the Lord being the wonderful counselor that he is. That's what Isaiah tells us one of the names of God is. Wonderful counselor. He knows Elijah is a human being. He knows that he is dust. He knows that he is frail and fickle. He knows he's not just a soul with skin on. He knows he is body, soul, and spirit. He knows that he is a multifaceted human being, and so his care for Elijah is also multifaceted. He doesn't just come in and go, we gotta plumb the depths of your heart right now. We have to talk about all the deep things that are going on in you right now, Elijah. And if we don't deal with this right now, you need to join a Bible study. You need to start praying more. And you need to get serious about the spiritual things that are going on in you right now. It's not at all what he does. He cooks for him. Let's him sleep. He touches him. He embraces him. He dwells with him. Do you know that sometimes when you are despairing, sometimes when you are depressed, what you really need first is to really be with someone, is to really eat a good meal, and is to really take a nap. That doesn't mean that's the end of your issues, that doesn't mean that's gonna deal with all of your heartache, but it may certainly be where you need to start. You may not need another five-hour soul-searching conversation just yet. You may not need to talk about all the inner workings of your heart and try to get to the bottom of all of your issues and go, what's going on to me? And I could plumb out all of these depths and I could stay up late and I could talk with more people and I could process more and I could, I could just, no, no, dig around, dig around. I gotta know why this is happening and I gotta figure out what's going on with me and all, all of that. You may need to go take a walk at Radnor with your best friend. And not talk about anything other than what you see at Radnor. You may need to go to your favorite restaurant. You may need to get coffee with someone who's going to be with you. You may need to be with someone who loves you and let them serve you some angel food cake. Okay? It's an easy joke. It's low-hanging fruit. But it is what we're told. Okay? <laughs> angel makes a cake. Okay? That's what happens. You, you may need to go to sleep. You may need to go to sleep to get a break from all the physical and spiritual exhaustion that you're experiencing. You may need to go to sleep to get a break from you. You may need to put down all the anxious toil, which is what Psalm 127 talks about. Like, th those who go to bed with anxious toil and rise up early to try to figure out their life, it's, it's in vain. Like, you may need to just take a break, and it, that Psalm 127 says, the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. You may need a giant break from you and all the processing about you. This is such wisdom for those of us that are despairing and depressed. This is also wisdom for us that are trying to care for people who are despairing and depressed. What you may need to do for your best friend right now is bring them a meal and not ask them anything. Or you may need to go over to their house and take all their kids for the day so that they can just be alone and they can go on a walk at Radnor by themselves. You may need to hire a babysitter and let them take your kids for the whole day and Midtown will help you pay for it if you need it. I'm serious. And you may need to go get a break from your life and take, a, take just a, a couple hours to be still and eat at your favorite place and drink a cup of coffee with a friend. That is real care. The Lord is actually doing that for his depressed servant. The Lord feeds and dwells with Elijah. And we're told that after that, Elijah has the strength to get up. And where does he go? 
he travels for 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb. Now, you may not know that if you are familiar with the Bible at all, you actually know what Mount Horeb is. You just don't know that it's called Mount Horeb. The other biblical name for Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. Elijah runs to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, the mountain where God's presence dwelled for a year with his Israelite former slaves coming out of the exodus of Egypt. He lands them at Mount Sinai for a year, and Moses goes up on the mountain, and the Spirit of God comes to dwell on the mountain, and the mountain shakes, and Moses spends 40 days on the top of the mountain with God's presence, getting the Ten Commandments and the tabernacle instructions. This is a place that for any Israelite represents where the Spirit of the presence of God dwells. It's almost as if Elijah is saying, I know that God just proved himself to the Israelites on Mount Carmel. I know that God just showed up in a mighty and powerful way for all the people over there back home, but I need to go meet with God myself. And I don't know where it's going to be, but I know he dwells there. And so this is Elijah going on the run, pleading with God to show up for him. So here's where we see the second thing that the Lord does in his care of Elijah. First thing is, he lets him be human. Second is, the Lord speaks to him. He gets to Mount Carmel after 40, or he gets to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai after 40 days. And this is where the piercing question, the question of God, our sermon series, comes in. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? It's a question loaded with love and care. And again, we've said this every week, but please know that when the Lord shows up and asks questions, it's never to get information for himself. The Lord is not on Mount Sinai, walking around Mount Sinai and bumping into Elijah going, what are you, do what are you doing here? I didn't expect to see you. What are you doing here? No, the Lord knows exactly what Elijah is doing there. Here's how the Lord asks questions. The Lord knows what Elijah is doing there the Lord asks Elijah the question because Elijah doesn't know what he's doing there. And in order for Elijah to begin to be renewed and restored, Elijah needed to admit out loud what he was doing there and why he was there. Elijah needed to hear Elijah's answer to that question. The Lord didn't need to hear it. Elijah did. He needed to admit what he was believing. He needed to admit spiritually what was going on in his soul. He needed to have someone reflect back to him. He needed to have someone listen to him and hear him, but also Elijah needed to hear him say it out loud. This is what I'm doing here. And I'm, I've been on the run and I'm terrified, I'm depressed and I'm suicidal. I don't even know what's going on in me until someone who loved him came and asked him, what are you doing here? Do you know what you're doing here? Because I think you need to know what you're doing here. And it's in Elijah's answer that we begin to see and he begins to see the toxic spiral of depression that was playing out in his own heart. The Lord asks him what he's doing there. And then in verse 10, Elijah gives his answer. And listen to Elijah's presumed righteousness of self. Listen to Elijah's inflated view of his own life. So the Lord says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And this is how Elijah answers. Verse 10. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. 
and they seek my life to take it away. Now on first read, you may go, that sounds right. That sounds like a very healthy understanding of what's going on. But let's dig a little bit. Let's, re- let's rehear what he just said in the context of what's going on. Elijah has this incredibly high view of himself, and he's a man with a nature just like ours. Remember that as we're studying this. He says to the Lord, I'm the only righteous one left. I'm the only righteous person in Israel, and the reason why I'm depressed and the reason why I'm in this isolation is because I've been so righteous. I've been jealous for you, and I, even I only, am left. I'm the only righteous person you have left. That's why I'm suffering this way. My suffering is happening because I've been so righteous. You want to know know what my problem is here, Lord? You want to know why I'm on Mount Sinai? I can tell you why I'm here. I've been too passionate for you. I've been too righteous for you. I'm the only one doing your work back home. I'm the only one serving you back home. I'm the only righteous person left in this family. Ever thought that? I'm the only righteous person you've got left, God. My problem, God, the reason why I'm here, God, is I've been too obedient. I've been too righteous. And that's what's created this mess. That's what's created this isolation. That's why I'm suffering. I've been too good. This is like, I thought of it immediately, which is a problem when you, whatever you immediately think of as an illustration reveals a lot about you. But I immediately thought about Michael Scott from The Office. <laughs> after he hits Meredith with his car, remember? Um, <laughs> why, I, re, I re, went and rewatched that whole scene this week, or the whole first part of the episode. It's, it's painfully funny. But he goes, <laughs> I can't even, I wish we could show it. But he says, yeah, guess what? I've got flaws. Sometimes I sing in the shower. Sometimes I volunteer too much. Sometimes I hit people with my car. Like he's like, he like can't even, you know. Everyone in the car was fine, Stanley. That's what he says. But anyway, <laughs> sorry. Uh, here, here's what Elijah just said. He said the same thing. You know what my problem is? I'm righteous and no one else is. Yeah, I may have issues. You want to know what my issue is? I've been too jealous for you. I've been too on fire for you, God. I've done too much work for you. I've been too obedient to you. And everybody's left you back home, and now Queen Jezebel wants to kill me. It's all over, God. Your plan on Mount Carmel at Bridgestone didn't work. Everything that was supposed to happen, everything I did for you to cause the showdown to happen, everything I laid down for you, everything I've sacrificed for you, I made all this happen, and it's not working. The mission's over. The plan's over. I'm done. You failed in the world, God, and it's not my fault. The reason why this is failing is because I was righteous for you and no one else has, everyone else has left you. It's over. So please hear me on this. His despair, and I'm not trying to oversimplify, I'm certainly not trying to over-spiritualize his despair and depression because despair and depression is complex and it's complicated. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not reducing it to one thing. But in part, part of his despair was due to his inflated view of himself. One of the surefire tests to know that you're not doing well and you are in despair, one of the tests is that the problems in your life are never your fault. And the only mentality you seem to have to explain the circumstances of your life is that you're a victim. You're always a victim. I didn't do anything wrong. This happened to me. I've been righteous. And yet somehow this, this keeps happening to me. And normally how that then begins to progress, just like Elijah does here in his answer, 
is we sit in our self-righteous seat above the circumstances, and we believe we have the ability to see all the angles and all the factors and something that has happened, and now we know how it's going to end, and we know the motives of what's going on and why certain people are doing certain things. When we believe from our self-righteous seat that the problems are not our fault, even if we admit things like, well, no, I'm not perfect, but... And then we begin to explain how the problems that are being created is from everybody else and what they're not doing. It's usually a good sign that we're not doing well. This is why the question of God is so piercing. What are you doing here, Elijah? And now Elijah has to verbally admit the reason why I'm here, God, is because I'm so much better than everybody He has to admit that in his pain and in his isolation, he has to spew out all the reasons why he thinks it's happening. And Elijah needed to hear himself say those things out loud. What are you doing here, Elijah? I'm here because I'm so righteous, I guess. The the pain that's going on, I, I can't explain it, but I know that it's not my fault. And Elijah's speaking that out loud is what begins to soften him to begin to hear from the Lord. Now, we need to stop and say this for just a minute. Elijah has run from Israel, quit his job, gotten suicidal, been fed by the angel of the Lord, taken a couple naps, run to Mount Horeb, run to Mount Sinai, gets asked a question by God, and God listens to him, it's very important, And it's only after all of those steps of care from the Lord to Elijah, letting him be human, feeding him, caring for him, touching him, empathizing with him, letting him get rest, and then even asking him a question and letting him speak and be heard. Only after all of that does the Lord start to speak and rebuke him. Please understand this. If you are caring for someone or if you are being asked to care for someone or if you are despairing, That this is how good, holistic care works. You don't come in and immediately rebuke. You don't come in and immediately say all the things that are wrong with their worldview or their theology or what's going on in the world or what's going on in them. You don't even call them out on their self-righteousness. Do you know how, like, his self-righteousness was there when he was eating with the angel. But the Lord's going, okay, get some sleep. I love you. I'm here with you. Do you need some more food? I'm here to serve you. I'm not here to fix you right now. It's only after a lot of other things have gone down does the Lord then begin to speak and rebuke Elijah. So look at how the Lord comes in and begins to speak to him. So, so helpful. Verse 11. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Elijah the man who calls down fire from heaven just a chapter before, you would expect that when he begins to see all these natural phenomena happening, all this incredible displays of God's power beginning to happen, he just saw God in the fire a chapter before, so he's going, 
okay, there's a tornado, there's, there's an earthquake, and there's fire. How is the Lord trying to speak to me? But we're told very clearly on each iteration, the Lord was not in any of that. That's not how he comes to heal Elijah. That's how he proved himself to Israel. That's not how he comes to speak to Elijah. The Lord spoke to Elijah in a whisper. The same God that showed his power on the mountain against the prophets of Baal with a fire was now coming in his tenderness to whisper to Elijah. Earth, wind, and fire. Not where the band name came from. I looked it up. Earth, wind, and fire. The Lord was in none of those. Elijah's greatest healing had to come from God's word to him. Not just any word, a whisper. Do you know how close you have to be to someone in order to hear them whisper to you? Do you know how intimate a whisper is? Do you know that unless you're creepy, you only whisper to people you love? You can shout to the masses, but you can only whisper to someone who literally cannot get any closer to you. Is it possible that the healing you need from your despair is to hear the Lord speak to you in the most intimate of ways? And here's the other thing, if you, if you know about whispering and how whispering works, the whisper of God can only be heard if you're silent. Can't hear a whisper if you're surrounded by noise or doing all the talking yourself. And you may be looking at God and screaming at him and wanting him to show himself in some spectacular way with all the noise. You may want him to show you an earthquake, a, a, a tornado, or a fire. You may want him to speak to you in the spectacular. But he may not be speaking to you through any of them. He may be trying to get as close to you as he possibly can, and he may be trying to whisper to you, and you will not be able to hear him if you're not quiet. And here's the other painful thing about this story, if we study it, and about how we would hear the Lord's whisper to us through his word, is that, and I, I hate this, it may take you 40 days to begin to hear him. Don't miss that little detail of the story that he runs through a desert and runs through wilderness before he's able to hear the Lord's whisper. And I'm not giving you a prescription that like, hey, if you get quiet for 40 days, on day 40 you're gonna hear the Lord. Here's what I'm saying. It may take an entire season of you showing up and waiting to hear from him and begging to hear from him and asking to hear from him and spending time in his word to you. It may take an entire season of a desert. And you may not hear anything for an entire season. And you may have to get through the journey of your own self-righteous spewing and all of the playing of the victim and all the blaming everybody else. That may be the noise that has to die down. And you have to get all of that out before you will hear him whisper to you. The Lord may have to pierce your heart with a question to get you to listen. But I promise you, I promise you, standing on God's word and his promise to you also, I can only say this because he promises it. If you get close enough for long enough, you will hear him whisper to you.
And then they finish their conversation, and this is important too. And again, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's the, when the Lord begins to rebuke him. This is helpful. Again, it's he only, the Lord only begins to speak to him after all of these other steps of care have, have happened for him. But the last thing the Lord tells Elijah, and this is, this is blunt, but it is so loving of the Lord. It's actually so tender of the Lord to do this after he's done everything else. He tells him he's wrong. He goes, hey, hey, Elijah, you're not the only one in Israel, bro. I know you said you're all alone, you're the only righteous one, and you're a victim from your own righteousness, and you're so good, and all of your problems is because you're all alone in Israel. You're the only one that still loves me. You're wrong. The narrative you've written about how all these circumstances are going down is wrong. It's not true. He says there's 7,000 others that haven't bowed down or kissed Baal, Elijah. Elijah, you are not alone. Elijah, the narrative you've written about these circumstances are not true. So Elijah, you need to get up, you need to shake off the dust, and you need to go back with your healed and restored heart. You need to go back because Elijah, the story is not over. You think I stopped working. You think I've abandoned Israel. You think it's all over. It's not over. I'm still God and I'm still good. That's how he closes out his speaking to Elijah. I'm still God in Israel and I'm still good and you are not all alone. Elijah's healed. He's whole again. He's restored. He's still human, but he's restored and he didn't get restored from the earthquake. He didn't get restored from the tornado or fire. He didn't get restored from the Lord booming down to him to tell him to shape up and to go back and not be afraid. Elijah gets restored from the tender whisper of God. God's word to Elijah was able to heal him and lift him up and give him back the strength he needed. He lifts him out of his despair and out of his self-righteousness and he sends him back. So here's the point. The Lord's word to you can heal you. It can. Here's what, I, here's what the, 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 the rebuke of this passage is for all of us. Can you hear him whispering to you? And if not, what's all the noise that's stopping you from being able to be quiet enough, quiet enough to hear from him? And here's how I know that when you get close enough for long enough, you will hear him whisper to you. Here's how I know that he is always speaking, always whispering to you. Here's how I know that you will never have a conversation with an absent heavenly father is that the story was so not over in Elijah's day that the story would actually keep going for a thousand or so more years. The story of God keeping a remnant of his people alive and for himself, keeping the line of Abraham alive, because one day he would bring Jesus from that line. And Jesus was ignored by his father so that you and I will never be. Jesus on the cross was cast out so that you and I could be embraced and brought in so close. See, Jesus, unlike Elijah, was really the only righteous one in Israel. Jesus really was all alone. Jesus really was zealous and jealous for the Lord over against everybody else. But instead of using that position to condemn the people and say, what are you doing? I am righteous and I am the victim here. He doesn't play the victim card. Instead of doing that, Jesus used his position to save us. 
He used his righteous position to save us. And on the cross, we're told that Jesus cries out for his Father. And in the first time since eternity passed, the Son was ignored by his Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried out, but he didn't hear the whisper. The silence of God towards his Son. He forsook his Son. Why? For your sake. Christ was caught up in the earthquake, the tornado, and the fire of God's wrath so that we could hear the whisper. And because Jesus was forsaken and decimated, now if you belong to him, the Father will never cast you out. I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you slept with. I don't care what beauty you vandalized. I don't care what you fantasized about doing. Because Jesus was cast out for you, I don't care how self-righteous you are, I don't care what victim card you've been playing your whole life, Jesus Christ was cast out so that you and I could be brought in, and not just brought into the family, not just brought into the estate, not just brought into the inheritance. We are brought so close, we're close enough to hear the whisper. So what are you doing here? Do you know why you think you're here? Do you know that in your despair there is a whisper that can heal you? There is a voice that wants to bring you as close as he possibly can and whisper to you. And that whisper can heal you. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we're loud. We don't even know how to quiet ourselves. And so like Roy read for us in our call to worship, would you quiet us with your love? Would your love have the ability to shut the other voices in our minds and hearts up, the voices of shame and the voices of fear? Would you shut them up with your love so that we could hear you speak to us? It's hard to get quiet, Jesus. There's so much noise. We pray now as we come to this table of your body and your blood, broken and shed for us, you would quiet us that we might hear you speak in your name. Amen.